and a pleasant good evening, Mets fans, and welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast. I'm Sam Lebowitz, as always, joined by Jack Hendon here on a, a little late afternoon or a late morning on a Monday because last night's ball game ended a little bit late. Uh, Jack and I are pumped. We're thrilled. We're excited because Francisco Lindor is a goddamn New York Met, and boy, did he show it last night against the Yankees as the Mets took the rubber match against the Yankees. In dramatic fashion, Francisco with three homers, including the go-ahead shot twice, actually, but the the go-ahead shot for good uh, late in that ballgame. My God, what a game, Jack. Yeah, what a game. I mean, just start to finish. I shouldn't say start to finish because there was a lot like in the middle that was that was tough. But, you know, we have a Francisco Lindor and they don't. And that's sort of uh, what I've taken away from that game is that we have somebody that our fans uh, have come around to uh, that. I don't really know. I mean, I, the thing about it is we talk about the Yankee fan base a lot, but we really don't play the Yankees like that often. So there's definitely like a a line of understanding that we kind of lack when it comes to like the players, but I, I don't know, man, it seemed like we were having a lot more fun with this than uh than the Yankees were and just you know it, it goes back to the postseason last year like you know they just kind of tried to stir the pot it, it backfired and we get to reap the benefits of it because Yankees Twitter is just intensely coping with this I mean it's 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 something special when the Mets win games like that because of how much it bothers Yankee fans I mean this might have been one of the best wins of the season it's at least top three at worst, it's top three, but I, I don't know. You can make an argument that it was the best one. I think it might be my favorite. This was, I mean, really, this was as good a game as the Mets have won all season. Uh, I mean, it, if somehow you missed it, uh, Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN, Mets went ahead four to two on a, on a three run shot by Lindor. It was five to two. Yankees cut it to five four on a Glaber Torres homer. Uh, Mets went up 6-4 on Lindor's second homer. Then Giancarlo Stanton tied it because Luis Rojas decided to use Brad Hand against him. Um, there was some jawing back and forth. Lindor was chirping after his second homer. Stanton was chirping at Lindor after his homer. And then Lindor came up again against Chad Green in the eighth inning and launched a 2-0 fastball and sent City Field into hysterics. And then Edwin Diaz got a little short pop-up from Stanton uh, with runners on base at second and third to uh, finish off the ball game. I mean, it was, it was a, a ludicrous baseball game. It was ridiculous. It was a really long game dragged from the second the game started and yeah. then the middle innings got, you know, exciting. And like, I, I really can't even begin to describe the emotions. Uh, it was just, it was so much fun watching these two teams go at it and seeing the spotlight, on a Mets team that is underperformed for like two months now, and maybe even all season depends on really how you view the team and Lindor specifically, who obviously had the rough start to the year, but since like the end of May, he's been on as, as good a run as he's had in his major league career. He's at like, I believe I saw the stats earlier that since the end of May, uh, he's rocking like a, a slightly above career high OPS. Uh, and, has been a, an ex, like a very productive hitter. Yeah. I mean, he's worked the uh, the league average numbers, right? Like OPS plus, WRC plus, those are both above average now. And when you, when you consider where he was at the beginning of the year, um, that is a huge stride. But also just from a narrative level, you know, he's taking curtain calls now. I mean, you don't do that if you're not a New York Met. I mean, Carlos Beltran, it was, that's like the prime example of a, of a, a, highly touted acquisition that didn't necessarily endear themselves to fans right away had some moments uh and then with time sort of became somebody that fans had warmed up to I think I mean this game really fell on Lindor's shoulders through and through and that's what I think that might be what makes this like for me second best over the best just because the game against the Marlins where they walked off, that was an effort of four or five guys scratching off hits. And that's the kind of rally that like, I love, but also you have to consider that. And this is, I really understand where people are coming from in that if you lose these games, like at this stage in the season, 
your odds are taking like much harder hits. And this was a game just for personal reasons, right? I mean, just for emotional reasons, can't lose it. Um, can't blow those leads to the Yankees. I mean, Saturday, which we'll talk about um, in all of its, you know, in all of its healing glory was also uh, a, a poorly played game after the Mets made their comeback. And these games go on a long time. Like you can't drop both of them when you're in a pennant race. And the fact that they came out on top of it uh, is, is huge. And the fact that Lindor was basically the guy that made this possible uh, is definitely something that I'm going to remember for pretty much his entire tenure, I think, good or bad. This was this has been his signature moment. And that was another thing that I found funny. I mean, each of those home runs was momentous for a different reason. Um, if you were like me and you made the mistake of having the uh, the ESPN broadcast sound on during that game, you probably heard Vaskersian say it after the first home run off Clark Schmidt that it was uh, a signature moment of Lindor's to hit the hanging curveball down two to one into the bullpen and make it four to two. That was his signature moment. And the, it did send the fans into a frenzy. But then what he did from the right side of the plate, I mean, he hit that ball off Wandy Peralta very far, easily his, his best piece of hitting from the right side of the plate. And then to chirp the players, which we should talk about too, because that's that opens a whole discourse about, about I think, like emotion in the game and stealing signs that uh, people will want to hear our opinions on. But for him to, I think, represent the team in giving it back to the Yankees for what they were doing was also a signature moment. And then obviously the third home run, like just everything about that, even the even the the shot in the background out of the out of focus shot of the fans dancing on top of that Yankee dugout, hoisting Puerto Rican flags like that's just like I mean, that is just so. Storybook like that's it's it's it'll I mean, it, it'll make you emotional if under different circumstances, I think like if this were a playoff game that probably would have just like brought the waterworks out. That was huge. And it yeah, felt like a playoff game. It did, which is, I mean, it's it's silly. Neither of these teams are in playoff spots right now, but it was it was a, a, a instant classic and like a career defining performance for Lindor. Especially, I mean, obviously a, a Mets career defining moment. Uh, but this is a dude who had some big moments in Cleveland. He's kind of used to being the guy sometimes, and he was the guy tonight. He really shined in this performance, and uh, we haven't seen him like this all year like he's mr smile and he he was grinning ear to ear the whole game except for when the two teams were chirping we will talk about that though the the, the fact that these two teams were kind of jawing at each other it all started in uh, on saturday's game um which there's a, a broader conversation about the the ceremonies and the 9-11 stuff which i think we both agree was handled very very well and then it turned out to be also a really great game. This was a really solid series all around, including the Mets blowing the Yankees out on Friday. Um, the Yankees went ahead 5-0 on Saturday. And in the midst of a five-run frame that featured three home runs, including homers by Kyle Higashioka, Brett Gardner, and Aaron Judge, Jonathan VR like popped over to the mound and said, hey, I think I noticed something. Um, and we didn't really know what he was saying, but apparently he told ESPN reporter Marley Rivera, after the game is that Walker may have been tipping pitches and he thinks the Yankees noticed because before certain pitches, he'd hear a loud whistle coming from the Yankees dugout. He alerted Taiwan. They figured something out because after Taiwan gave up the five spot, he retired, I believe 13 batters in a row. Yeah. Uh, and, and was really, really, really good after that five run second inning. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mets wound up coming back in that game. They led 6-5 at one point on James McCann home run, but Trevor May uh, let it get away. Yeah. Fast forward to the Sunday game, and when Lindor hits his second home run, as he's you know, trotting around second base, he does the little whistle uh, motion with his hand in the direction of, I believe, Glaber Torres. He did uh, it around the infield. He, he made sure like the second baseman got it, Torres got it, the pitcher got it. He, he, he definitely, I think, put the stamp on around a couple of Yankees, but that, I mean, that's even better. Right. Yeah. Cause that was just, it's, you know, but yeah, that happened. And then Stanton, uh, not too, not too uh, far after the fact hit a ball off Brad hand that 
has yet to land uh, and took a very long time, uh, you know, running around the bases, which, you know, I mean, you hit a ball that hard, that's fine. You do that. But the fact that he then, as he was walking around, as he was, yeah, I mean, practically walking around the bases, stopped his, his stroll to talk to Lindor was like, I mean, that's something that doesn't really happen a lot. And uh, I'm not like opposed to players reaching that kind of interaction. Like I'm not someone who says like, oh, that's bad for the game. But like, it's just a really like, I think weird and embarrassing look for the Yankees because like you guys got caught. Like that's why you were getting jawed. I mean, he apparently told Lindor like, don't talk shit, you know, just like stop talking shit. But like, you guys deserved it. I think everybody who knew the, the, the background of this would agree, whether you're the Yankees or the athletics, right? That like, if you're, if you're not going to be discreet about the fact that you're stealing signs, like that's where it goes from part of the game to like sort of disrespecting the other team and how you're exploiting that part of the game. And I really, I think, appreciated that Lindor let them know like, hey, we notice it. And I thought it was weird that Stanton like got defensive about that and how Gardner and a bunch of other Yankees got defensive about it too, that Lindor was just chirping. Like, no, he was, he was sticking up for his team because you guys were being dicks. Yeah. I mean, and the, the bases wound up, excuse me, the benches wound up clearing, you know, the, the bullpens, you know, uh, unfilled, which is always funny to me when they try to get involved, they're always late. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gardner was doing the thumbs down thing as like a, you know, a, making fun of the Mets for the whole thing that happened a few weeks ago. And uh, it's like, whatever, man, you look like a thumb. So um, yeah. well, then- he, him doing that was just a big mistake. Cause as soon as you give those guys grief for the thumbs down stuff, that's when they perform their best. Yeah. Like, and we've, we've established this now, like you, you basically fed the gremlins after midnight when you did that, like that was just whatever. I mean, Brad, I don't expect Brett to know it's, 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 it's very complicated stuff, but. And then uh, post-game, the Yankees kind of had their own little version of the Rat Raccoon thing going on where they said – because Lindor hit the home run, his second home run, which he chirped off Mm -hmm. of Wandy Peralta, who's kind of a rinky-dink little middle relief lefty that the Yankees traded for midseason. He's not very good. Uh, Both Joey Gallo and Giancarlo Stanton, as far as I saw, I don't know if any other players commented on this, but when asked about the whole whistling thing – they were like, no, no, no. It had nothing to do with stealing signs or with Taiwan Walker tipping pitches. It was that was Wandy Peralta, the pitcher, uh, in the dugout, um, you know, trying to trying to stir up some noise, trying to you know get his team hyped up in this big game. Uh, which, first of all, I don't know if Wandy Peralta was in the dugout. Uh, some relievers do stay in the dugout in the early part of the game. Some don't. I'm sure there were cameras pointing towards the dugout that we could find out for a fact if Peralta was in there. Uh, second, that story's bullshit. We know that story's bullshit. They, if it was Andrew Heaney that was on the mound when Lindor hit the home run, if it was Clark Schmidt, I mean, not Clark. I don't even think Clark Schmidt was with the big league team. No, they just recalled yeah. him. That would, that would fall flat. If it was but... Albert Abreu, if it was whoever, Rollis Chapman who gave up that, that home run that, that Lindor was chirping on, they would have said it was him who was whistling, I bet. Because you can't corroborate that. There's no yeah. way for us to corroborate that. But it's obvious. It's so blatantly obvious that the story is crap. Yeah, well, the no... whistling stopped. The whistling literally stopped after VR went over to Walker, which is the other thing. Like, why'd you stop supporting your team at that point? Like, it wasn't about supporting your team, idiots. Yeah, so I don't know if it was a, if it was a sign-stealing thing. We don't really know what was actually going on. But according to VR, he noticed the whistling. Uh, and after they, that stopped happening, Taiwan started pitching better. So we don't know if it was a sign stealing thing or if Taiwan was tipping pitches and, you know, someone on the, the bench was noticing when he would tip the pitches and was whistling when he would tip the pitches um, and relaying that to the hitter. In that case, like if it was a tipping pitches situation, just tell your hitters what to look out for. Uh, like seriously, because whistling to relay that before it happens, every single time it happens is Bush league. That's why yeah. the Mets were pissed because mm-hmm. stealing signs with your eyes are, are noticing pitchers, tipping pitches. That's part of baseball. There's no way to prevent that. That's not dirty. That's just part of the nature of the game. 
Yeah. If your signs are obvious, that's going to happen. Like yeah. it's, it's an adaptive thing for both stealing, teams. Yeah. Stealing signs with technology or relaying it in really obnoxious ways, like banging a trash can or whistling really loudly. That stuff, that's Bush League. That's where it crosses the line. That's when players are going to get mad at being exploited or, uh, you know, whatever. So yeah. that's that's why the Mets were getting pissed. If yeah. Giancarlo Stan doesn't understand that, then I don't know what to tell him, but the story that he and Gallo gave was crap. Yeah. Uh, Lindor had every right to be a little bit frustrated. And it's, a, it's an emotional moment. It's an emotional series surrounded by this big anniversary of 9-11. He hasn't performed to the, le- the level he wants all, you know, all year. He's got this big monkey on his back with the New York media and fan base. And it's a, 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 a huge moment yeah. and puts yeah. the team on his back for a second. You know, emotions run high and he's going to say something if he's got a problem with somebody. And he did. Yeah. yeah. And it was and cool. I would, it was cool. Yeah. I thought it was cool. And I would add to like, I think it's, I think that I'm not going to be someone that's like, oh, well, you deserve to get thrown at for what you were doing, right? Like, I don't believe in that ever, but like teams do that. The fact that this retribution came in the form of Lindor hitting a homer off of you like 430 feet and chirping you around the bases is probably like the second to best case scenario there. Like you didn't get, you didn't actually get like, you know, you didn't get told off in the form of 95 miles per hour behind you. Like you basically had the opportunity to get him out and never hear him say anything. Um, yeah. And, and, and you didn't. And that's why it, you know, that's, that's why it's so weird that I think it was like a personal thing for the Yankees. And so. Stan, Stan said something fascinating post game. He said, uh, talk is cheap and you got to back the talk up. And he and Lindor both had opportunities with the game on the line to back up their talk. And to Stanton's credit, he acknowledged Lindor got it done and he didn't. Yeah, he hit the home run mm. off right hand, but he came up with second and third or first and second. There was a cross up, probably should have been strike three, a pass ball that allowed the runners to advance with two strikes to Stanton. Thank you, James McCann. Very cool. Um, but yeah, Stanton came up, it wound up having second and third, two out down a run against Edwin Diaz and chased three fastballs outside the zone twice for fouls and once for a little jam shot, soft liner to Lindor to end the game. So Lindor came up with a chance to back his talk up, hit a third home run of the game. Stan came up with a chance to back his talk up and ended the game with an out. So um, to Stan's credit, he acknowledged Lindor backed his talk up. I maybe didn't so much. Didn't say it outrightly, but implied it. Uh, But yeah, I mean, talk is cheap. And especially in a sport like baseball where punches don't get thrown a whole lot. Like if this was hockey, punches were being thrown for sure. Uh, They were just kind of jawing at each other and standing around very classic baseball brawl. Um, But, you know, it's one thing to talk the talk. It's another thing to back it up. And Francisco Lindor, our king, he backed it up and God, it was so cool. (laughs) Yeah, it was cool. I also, I mean, that wasn't, that was on the offensive side. It was pretty much a clinic on Lindor's part. I mean, Baez had some big hits. Uh, McNeil had a double at one point, but that was that. And then on the pitching side, it was pretty encouraging because that was probably like the first time in a very long time this year that Edwin Diaz came out and didn't really have his stuff at first, right? I mean, you could see the slider was missing spots badly. The fastball wasn't really hitting its spots either. And um, it was like the hallmark, you know, making mistakes until someone hits a home run kind of outing for him. And he recovered it. He recovered really, really nicely with two on and one out to get Brett Gardner the way he did. That was a phenomenal sequence. And then to challenge Stanton. I mean, he threw him nothing but fastballs and Stanton could not catch up to it. It was, it was really, it was a really pleasant sight because he needed it a lot. I think, I mean, he's really going to need to continue doing that. If this team is going to have any chance, that's their first win by one run in 13 one-run decisions, 13 straight games that have been decided by one run, the Mets have lost, that finally snapped their streak. Uh, that is that is a chance to be a, a major turning point for the bullpen too, because they did not have that good a week. I mean, we'll do a lot of talking about the week at large, but a lot of people struggled 
Diaz included, and to actually come out of that that situation on top uh, was also, I think, very refreshing from him and also from Lugo because Lugo had a, to have a scoreless eighth inning too. That set up the Lindor bomb pretty well. I mean, I did not think Lugo was going to go three up, three down, and he did, which was really uh, a welcome sight. He's been good lately, both of them. Yeah, and again, great series. The Lindor the home, third home run, great moment. ESPN cut away from the ball before it even landed yeah. because wh- whoever was producing their broadcast caught that Lindor was flexing on his way to first base towards the Mets dugout, cut to it, showed that instead. Brilliant. That's my lock screen now on my phone. Yeah. Like all around just a, a game filled with like fresh iconography for Mets fans to, you know, uh, absorb and utilize and use for content moving forward. And, oh man, we're going to be talking about this game for a while. Instant classic. Can't wait for S and Y to add it to the rotation of, of Mets classics. Amazing um, finishes. Yeah. Amazing finishes. 2021. Number one. Francisco. Well, hopefully Lindo. that's not number one. I mean, hopefully we get some, some better ones going forward. Cause I mean, we'll need a couple. Yeah, they stand, they I'm stand happy with that being 18 one, games right? left to play 18 games left to play 72 and 72 three games back in the wild card five and back in the division division is probably dead now wild card maybe not so we'll see um where do you want to pivot to now jack well we should i think we should probably stick to the series and talk because that was sunday's game was a great baseball game um but part of i think what made that so refreshing was because the whole series had such an emotional weight to it. And I think a lot of that is due to what Saturday's game uh, provided us. And I think that, I think maybe that's probably our best place to, you know, we don't even need to talk like results, so to speak, because we know what the results were and like just Trevor made and get it done. But uh, I I don't know. I thought it was all really well put together that for that 20 year anniversary of the September 11th attacks, which, um, you know, we weren't, really old enough to uh to i think uh appreciate the the significance of if if that's the right way to put it um you know most of what we've known is uh hearsay it's it's you know hearing from people that we know who knew people uh who were affected who were in the towers who were on the planes uh who had to go down to pull someone out and it's uh you don't realize because of how big New York City is that it it's something that affected so many people still. Like, I mean, that was a day that, you know, the country came under attack. And I, I, I respect that, that uh, sentiment. But there was also a huge uh, test of, like, New Yorkers' metal in that moment to, to, to be together and to, uh, you know, assist one another in that in that particular moment when uh there was just so much carnage uh and and so many questions about why this was happening what was going to happen next um just as far as i'm you know told and have been taught a, a really vulnerable moment in that in that city in that state's history and i i, I would love it personally if every september 11th game was was a mets yankees game i don't know how i feel about it being nationally broadcast i think that it would be really cool if um michael k gary cohen both booths kind of you know shared that that moment a little bit just to really keep the the uh the new york heartbeat in it i mean that's not to say buck and smoltz didn't do a good job i know i'm petty about the two of them because of uh how their broadcasts usually go but uh, other than that, I, I couldn't have asked for anything more. I think it was a really touching tribute. Yeah. Uh, like, like you said, I was not really conscious when the actual attack happened. I was about 21 months old, um, and I don't remember anything about the day. So I do, however, feel as – because we, you and I both, we grew up in a post-9-11 world where we had this kind of – uh, uber patriotic fervor and, and you know the wars going on in the Middle East and that was just kind of normalcy for us that was part of the lexicon that we grew up around and um, 
it, it's hard to put into perspective uh, my own perspective. It's hard to put into words my own perspective around the attacks because I, I know people who were personally affected by it. Um, I had a, a teacher in high school whose, uh, I believe, brother or brother-in-law was on the the flight that landed in Shanksville and, and passed away on that flight and was one of the people that um, kind of helped uh, take the plane back. And, and so, you know, I've heard all these stories growing up and, you know, the, the Mike Piazza home run is I think one of my favorite moments in baseball history. It's a moment that, you know, fuels my passion for broadcasting the sport because God, how he nailed that call better than any call I've ever heard. And, it's, it's just, you know, there's a lot of weight to it, especially growing up in and around the New York City area. But I have always felt kind of disconnected from the actual moment. But this ceremony, I really think that they nailed it. I think they got it right. I think they got the, the tone right. Um, the city, uniting the city, having the Mets and Yankees standing side by side, in, you know, uh, yeah, uh, alternating Mets and Yankees on the, on the, on the uh, foul line during the national anthem. Um, I thought that was a nice touch. Um, the Mets uniforms I thought were excellent, having the old school white jerseys with New York across the front instead of Mets across the front, like most home jerseys. I thought that was a nice touch. Obviously, wearing the um, first responders caps is always a nice touch, and I wish that they had been doing that sooner or that MLB had been letting them do that sooner. Um, overall, you know, it is fascinating that we went from, you know, unity to uh, getting mad at each other on a baseball field within, you know, in, in about 24 hours. But um, right. it really does speak to the emotional weight of the series. I think they nailed it Saturday. It was also a really good baseball game. Uh, unfortunately, the Mets didn't come out on top in that game, but it was still a really good game. Good back yeah. and forth, I think. It was yeah. a good event for people to – I mean, that's something that I always found kind of interesting, and this isn't going to be like a fully formed thought or whatever, but I'll try and go where I go with it. But, um, you know – I really considered uh, the tributes to be a, a, a pretty stern reminder that there is more to life than baseball, that we're playing this game to entertain people, but we can never forget uh, the trauma that followed what happened. And that goes in a, in a variety of directions, right? The, the way that, uh, you know, fire departments and battalions um, were just completely decimated, right? Um, I think that there's probably something to be said also about the hate crimes that uh, that followed in the wake of those attacks, right? I mean, that was a moment that uh, is also, I think, pretty dark for us that we, you know, don't really get to think about as often, in part because of distractions like baseball and probably a couple other distractions here and there. But um, there were there was a lot of pain uh, that you know followed that moment that really I don't think ended uh, when the Mets played that game against the Braves 10 days later. Uh, but there's also, I think, a, a real therapeutic value in coming together and enjoying a, you know, a, an event as a city, as a, you know, as a, as a unit in some way. Um, it's not everything, right? And we know that because of the tributes. We know what's really important is, um, you know, hugging our loved ones and uh, letting them know before they, you know, board a flight that we love them and we hope they land safe and so much more than that, right? I mean, that's just the beginning of it. But to get little opportunities to also get some of that emotion out is part of why sports are so special. So I think that the game ultimately, like even though the Mets lost, it it also did a very good job of being one that uh, gave us something to, I think, share together. Uh, and that's really important. And I mean, you know, whether it, even if it created, you know, even if there was hostility 24 hours after the fact because of sign stealing, and I'm sure fan bases will be like the, the, the feuding houses for the next few months over this, right? Like just to have, I think that opportunity to just simply reflect on our relationship to sports uh, and also our relationship to each other is super valuable. So I, the, it did a really good job of, of making me think about that. Yeah, I totally agree. My parents were at the game on Saturday and they said it was really touching in a, a really great environment, a playoff feel. And um, 
you know, I'm glad that they got to experience that. And uh, a little jealous, to be honest, that I didn't get to go to one of these games this weekend. We're going to take a quick break, do our little ad, and then uh, we'll come back and, and recap the week as a whole and uh, and look forward to the, uh, the next upcoming week and uh, remember some guys. We'll be right back. And we're back. And uh, let's talk on the field production, on the field uh, performances from the past week, not just the Subway Series. Uh, Mets finished off a five-game set last weekend with the Nats with a blown save walk-off loss on Monday and then losing two of three in Miami. Two one-run losses. Uh, uh, it, it, not a great week overall before the Subway Series, taking two of three from the Yankees. Very, very good. Um, but the Mets had more chances to make up ground this week and didn't, and uh, kind of unfortunate. But again, 72-72, and 72, even record with 18 games to play. Uh, the Mets are five games out in the NL East, five games behind the Braves, um, only, I believe, a half game out behind the Phillies. Yeah, it's it's close there. And then in the NL wildcard race, they're three games out of the second wildcard. Again, the Phillies in front of them. The Cardinals are in front of them, who the Mets play today. They have a chance to help themselves there. And then the Reds and Padres, I believe, are currently tied for that second wildcard with the Dodgers currently holding the first wild card. It's going to be either the Dodgers or the Giants, depending on the finish in the NL West, who hosts that game. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be – it's – we're really in some ways only playing for one game. Like, the Dodgers and Giants are both just – I mean, what's the what's the lead the Dodgers have over the second spot right now? It's like 14 games or something. Like, it's – it's they, there should just be like a fourth division or something. Like, they should just I, – I, I shouldn't be so pessimistic, right, because these wins were great. I also said at the beginning of, I think, or at the end of last episode that the Mets really only had like – four or five losses to, to spread out across the next couple of weeks if they wanted to make this happen. And they lost four games this week. So I don't really know what it says about our chances. Three games back is really good. Taking two or three from a good Yankees team is good. You're going to need to do that same thing against the Cardinals. I would argue you have to sweep them. Uh, gaining one game on them, like by taking two or three, it's just, it's it's not the pace. It's, it's not quick enough. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a good thing the game yesterday ended the way it did because it was just a otherwise a week of a lot of missed opportunities, I think. I think they could have won any of these games. They blew a lead to lose that game to the Nationals, um, and they really shot themselves in the foot, those two losses to the Marlins, one from a management perspective, another from an offense perspective, like – in the, in the bullpen, too. I mean, that's something that is, has cratered a little bit in the last week. Like, these aren't things that you can take into a series with the Cardinals. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see what they do with that because you cannot you, – you just can't lose games by one run anymore. And, you, I mean, you can't lose games, period. But you can't lose games that you, you pretty much are right there to win. Yeah, well, you really couldn't afford to lose games to the Marlins, period, uh, and the Nats. I mean, for that measure, that all three losses this week to those two teams, and even the one to the Yankees, winnable games. And and so instead of uh, being nine and one in your last ten, they're five and five in their last ten, with four one run losses. Uh, it's kind of just tough out here. It's there's nothing more to say about it that hasn't been said already. It's just the little things that this team doesn't do well are what caused them to, uh, to lose these games. The, the, the late bullpen faults uh, hurting them, the little weird managerial decisions. Like yeah. we talked Brad hand uh, against Giancarlo Stan, which was a weird call Aaron loop, not even being used in that game. But I mean, Rojas, uh, Pinch hitting James McCann, pinch hitting for James McCann with Patrick Mazika in the 2-1 loss on Wednesday uh, with J.D. Davis on the bench. He, he said something about how it was against Anthony Bender. He he liked Mazika as a left-hand hitter against Bender's slider more, but... I don't get that. It's Mazika. Have you seen him swing at sliders? Like I mean, they don't have it. They don't... I mean, they didn't have... They don't have any real bat on the bench. I mean, I don't even trust J.D. at this point. Uh, you know, Brian De La Cruz, who's been going off since he got to Miami, he's hitting like 350 yeah. with two out and a runner on third. 
in extras when you had Lewin Davis, who's like hitting 100 on deck, like you didn't have to pitch to Dela Cruz and you did. And then, yeah, uh, they do not like intentionally walking people, but that was like, be really pointless to, to pitch to Dela Cruz there. I guess the, the idea may have been that like, I mean, Rojas lives and dies by righty lefty. That just seems to be the thing like that Lewin Diaz. I don't think anyone would have faulted strategy if Lewin Diaz had gotten the hit off Edwin Diaz or if he had like walked or something, you know, to load the bases. Like if that's how you lose the game, that's because Edwin Diaz didn't get a job done. You need to put a guy in, in a position to really, I think, succeed. And like, I don't buy righty righty in that spot. I mean, do you really need to compromise to that point with Edwin Diaz on the mound if you trust him so much? That's my thing too. It's like, you know, if you do you really like is it is lefty righty that important that Patrick Mazika is the guy that's gonna bat over JD Davis? Like it's that sort of thing. And I I I'm a little bit, I think we differ a little on the JD thing because I think he's been playing hurt. I mean, we both know he's been playing hurt. He's had hand problems pretty much ever since he came back. And it's why he's late to every high fastball. But I mean, I still trusted him in that spot more than Mazika. The body of work kind of speaks for itself. Um, and I mean, the sure the, the I, Diaz, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I again, yeah, JD is playing hurt, and he's also just JD Davis and doesn't really hit velocity well. I, yeah, I mean, Mazika puts good swings on the ball sometimes, but yeah, I, I don't know. There's, I don't think it, it was going to work out either way there, to be honest. Sure. Um, but the team just hasn't in these one run losses, they never hit with runners in scoring position. Oh, for seven in the, the Thursday game with runners in scoring position, like they that do was not, brutal. They do not hit with runners in scoring position if they lose games. Uh and, and that's an issue that's plagued them all season. And really it's gonna come back to bite them when you look and say, Well, here's this stretch in August, September where they lost 13 one run games in a row or went one in twelve or whatever it was and uh, miss the playoffs by however many games they probably missed the playoffs by. They still have a chance. Like, they really got to take care of business against the Cardinals starting mm -hmm. tonight. Like, Rich Hill against Adam Wainwright, battle of the geriatrics. Like, let's let's get it done, fellas. Let's let's beat this mediocre Cardinals team. We're also mediocre. It's fine, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a chance. We, we have a chance to make the playoffs at 500. Yeah, I think you need to be like, you probably need at least eight games over to get there, but it's, I still would just so much rather win the division. I don't want to face the Dodgers like, like that early. I'd rather just, you know, if, I mean, if I finishing, guess finishing eight games over 500 means they go 16 and two the rest of the way, by the way. 16 and yeah, I, or no, no, they have to go 13 and uh, five to do that. Oh, because they're yeah. 72 and 72. Yeah, you're right. Um, they could probably do that, I think. Like, they've been on that pace. I mean, what the best case scenario, really. I mean, you look at what the uh, the Baez game two weeks ago did for them in terms of, you know, springboarding from a moment into a streak. You, you hope that Lindor's performance against the Yankees really, like, gets this team moving in the right direction to beat up on some bet some good some better teams than the Marlins and Nationals. Um, you hope that it gets you going in that direction because really if it doesn't, they, they aren't going to get anything done. I still maintain that they have a chance at the division. Five games out is, is very tough. You also really only need to gain two games uh, between now and the last series of the year to have a chance. Um, I mean, if you win three in a row, uh, if you sweep that series somehow, and they will have had to play very well to get to that point. And at that, you know, at that stage, I would trust them with an opportunity to sweep the Braves. If you want to win that division, you have to hop more teams to win the wild card, which is a, is a control issue in itself. Admittedly, you can kind of bury the Cardinals if you sweep them now. I mean, you can just eliminate them from the picture uh, if you supplant them in the standings. Uh I mean, they're pretty much right up against the Phillies in terms of like the next NL team to drop out of this thing. So they need to get going. As far as what it is that needs to get going, I'm not totally sure if it's at the offense that needs to kick it into gear, if it's the bullpen that needs to do a better job than it did last week, if it's simply 
DeGrom and Nimmo coming back in time. I mean, they keep trying to, to do this with Jacob DeGrom. They have him throwing bullpens and seeing how he can playing catch and seeing how he feels. I mean, time is really running out to even do a sim game at this point. Like you need to get moving on that. If you're going to do it, something has to give is, is more my point, but I don't know what you think about like what's most important among all like the potential like X factors. Yeah. Uh, I think the biggest X factor is scoring runs. They got to keep doing that. Um, Cause when this offense clicks, that's when the offense is at, you know, the, the team plays its best baseball and it clicks. What we really need ideally is a stretch to finish the year when both the offense performs adequately and the pitching is good because it feels like when the offense is good, the pitching kind of falters. And when the pitching is good, the offense is nowhere to be found. Yeah. We need yeah. comfortable wins, comfortable wins that take some pressure off Rojas. So he doesn't have to make these stupid mistakes uh, mm-hmm. as often because he will make mark my words he will make some stupid mistakes the rest of the year um, 18 games left just the team has to work cohesively and I, I hope that this Lindor three homer game is a jumping off point for that and that they, they can ride this momentum and keep playing really really good baseball because they have played decent baseball especially before this week they had not lost two games in a row since the end of August since August 24th 27th when they lost four in a row like come on just play cohesive baseball, do little things right, create some margin for victory by scoring a handful of runs, you know, have a couple five-run wins, have a couple six-run, you know, blow out. Have a McGill game again. Friday was awesome. The 10-3 win over the Yankees. Yeah. We didn't even really touch on that, but, like, McGill pitching seven innings for the first time in his career and striking out 10 pretty good Yankee hitters, like, that was really good. I would like to see that more. I think Marcus Stroman's done just about anything you could ask him to do. Um, it's, I think it's offense really at this point. Like, I think that what's happened, uh, is in the aggregate right now, this team is like, it's, they're getting it done, right. Scoring 10, seven and seven in a series is very good, especially against like, you know, again, a good team, their pitch, the Yankees pitching is not very good, but you know, they've made, they've put some things together. I did not think they were going to do what they did against Jordan Montgomery. Right. Like that was a good offensive clinic that they put on. Yeah, they did. But guys need to be more consistent. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to, because last week we had Pete Alonso and Jonathan VR leading the charge. Alonso went hitless in this series against the Yankees. VR has stepped back dramatically. He's four for his last 26. And in their place, right, like Lindor and Conforto step forward. And Javi's been consistent through and through. And he's been on another planet. Yeah, Javi's on another. Javi's Javi's hitting like Cespedes. I don't know if you saw that stat where they compared Mets analytics did a, a, a good job with the side-by-side there, but they're slugging just about the same. Javi's basically doing for us what Cespedes did like six years ago. Um, and that's not even considering like the defensive value he brings, but you need more consistent hitting than just Javi. Like Alonzo needs to have he needs to have more games like he did um in the Miami series where he hit two homers like in the 9-4 win you need more from at least two of those guys between Alonzo McNeil and NBR I think because right now Conforto and Javi and Lindor are doing their jobs but uh it's it's the the juxtaposition in the batting order makes it difficult for them to make anything happen right because you have like VR not really getting it done. And then Lindor gets on and Conforto gets on, but then Alonzo doesn't get it done. It's or, or you get all the way down to McCann and McCann isn't hitting, you know, he had a good game against the Yankees. Otherwise it's been a little bit uh, of a slow start for him off the injured list. Like guys need to hit, they need to hit consistently. They need to, I think, work off of each other Um, because ultimately what we saw on, um, on, in last night's game was that the bullpen didn't have it but someone in that offense did. And that's what made it possible for them to win that game. Like you score more than the other team, you're going to win simple as that. And you also, like, like you said, you make it diff- more difficult for Luis Rojas to risk playing the the worst guy, you know, Brad hands, not going to blow any game right now. If, you know, if you're winning like five, nothing and you bring him in, you know, like that's just the uh, perfect scenario. So that's kind of how I feel about it too. I'm not banking on anyone coming back and changing things or management coming down to earth and making good decisions. Like 
the hitters need to drive this thing if they want to if they want to do it. It starts with Adam Wainwright, who's having a very good season. Yeah, an oddly good season, a resurgence yeah. season. Uh, ERA under three at what forty one years old, forty years old. Um, and he's, he's he's whooping everyone on the innings count too. Like that's definitely going to win him some Cy Young votes. Is the oh, fact that he you know complete workhorse this year. Yeah, yeah, really respectable stuff. Under three weeks to go. Let's do it. I'm going to ask you right now. Do they get it done? Do they make the playoffs? Um, they, I think they finish four over 500, but miss the playoffs. I think that's where they go. I think they, I think that this series against the Cardinals is going to go their way. I think they're going to put in a real effort, but I don't think they're going to make it. No. I say 82 and 80 finish miss the playoffs by three games. Okay. feels realistic to me uh yeah. we'll see how it actually goes in practice obviously we'll update you week to week but yeah. uh yeah we'll uh let's let's remember some guys and uh now that we have our, our predictions set with 18 games to play um would you like to go first yeah sure um so i've been thinking a little bit about like all of this just brings me right back to 2007 and 2008 just because you have a team that risks collapsing at any point. Um, it's not really like 2016 for me because this, this roster is a little bit more stacked at this stage. Um, but it makes me think a lot about just, you know, different hitters uh, that have come and gone. And, you know, it reminds me of a guy that, you know, probably led their offense a little towards the end of the 2008 season. It doesn't really get like that much credit for it. Uh, he's also someone that had to play through a couple concussions. Uh, but I'm remembering Ryan church because he was, he was definitely a dude that helped this team down the stretch in 2008. And, uh, you know, all the way to that last swing. I don't know if you have any memories of that, uh, that last game, uh, at Shea stadium when he, uh, made the last out, but they were down two and there's a man at first and two out and he hit a ball, like that off the bat looked like it at least was going to go warning track and it went right to the warning track and died there. And that's how the season ended, but put some pretty good swings on the ball. And I just remember those last, you know, 18 games or so, I mean, I'm looking at it now. He hit uh he combined a hit. Well, he actually, Oh geez. Yeah. He actually didn't hit that well. <laughs> so yeah, I, I remember him being a lot better than, than he really was. But that's maybe that's just how this team is. So yeah, kind of awkward. But uh, remembering Ryan Church. Yeah, they feel bad for Ryan Church. They really screwed around with him a little bit. The concussion stuff put him on planes cross country, uh, and then they traded him for Jeff Francoeur, which was cool for a second. Yeah, for a second, brief second. Uh, I am remembering in the same kind of in, in the vein of the Subway series. Uh, lots of great Subway Series moments. One I feel like that gets buried a little bit, gets talked about sometimes. 1999, Mets trailing the Yankees by two out, or by one run with two out and two strikes, bottom nine. Greatest closer of all time, Mariano Rivera on the mound. And who comes up with a clutch base hit? Matt Franco. Matt Franco. Who? Matt Franco. He was like pinch hitter extraordinaire for the Mets for like five years. He spent 96 to 2000 with the Mets and logged over a hundred games played in every single season. However, he never accrued more than 187 plate appearances in a single season. He was literally a pinch hitter and he was totally fine at it. Actually, he got on base uh, at a 360 clip, a 366 clip in both 1998 and 1999. And though the, the power numbers were not extraordinarily high, never had more than five home runs in a season for the Mets. Uh, and the batting average never topped out above 280. He like was totally fine. Holds the major league record for the amount of pinch hit walks in a season with 20. What year fun. was that? As a Met, I believe so. Yeah. 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 Um, he was he was good. Yeah, and uh, that '99 team, man. Another f- little tidbit about uh, Matt Franco is that he's the nephew of actor Kurt Russell. Oh, God. Oh, I don't know Kurt Russell from anything other than Sky High. I'm going to be honest. I just remember <laughs> him from Sky High. 
which is, you know, that's whether that's the, uh, that's the zoomer brain or whatever. Yeah, don't have that much of a escape from New York. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, uh, Hateful Eight, Sky High. Obviously, I know from Sky High too, but you know, yeah. famous actor. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. All that. That's stuff. a good dig, though. Ninety nine with that team because, like, that's kind of where the Mets are right now in terms of like outside looking in, despite having a talented roster. Like those guys really like put it together to get where they did. They had some fun characters on that team. Uh, I could talk about them for a while. One yeah. of the, I think they're probably the best team. The, probably the best Mets team to never win a World Series, I would I would say. If they had just beaten the Braves, they would have played the Yankees in the World Series. I don't um, know, man. That 2006 team, I still think, is so, so good. Yeah. If I don't know. Stayed, if only the pitching stayed healthy. Yeah. I think the 99 pitching has the 06 pitching beat, and the offenses are, like, neck and neck. I mean, I don't think the 06 team had anyone who hit, like, John Olerud. That's my thing. Well, the 06, like, team, the 06 team had uh, – very nearly peak David Wright. I think 07 was Wright's best year, obviously. Yeah. 06, he was still great. They had peak Carlos Beltran. Like, that was the year Beltran probably should have won MVP. Mm-hmm. Um, they had old man Carlos Delgado, who was still raking. Uh, peak Jose Reyes. Uh, Jose Valentin was excellent, that, oddly excellent that year. Cliff Floyd was really good that year. Like, everything clicked on the offensive side for that 06 team. Yeah. So, I don't know. They didn't have, you know, um, John Oler. They didn't have a guy hitting 360, and they didn't have a Hall of Famer behind the plate, but uh, still a really good team. Yeah. Best infield ever, right? Yeah. The mm-hmm. 99 team. Fonzie. Yeah. Good bullpen, too. But that's for a, uh, that's for a past life that, uh, that I didn't live. <laughs> Man, it's, it's a rough life out here as a Mets fan because if, if the team is good, they're amazing. But if they're not amazing – they are just not going to perform at all. Yeah. Well, they'll, I mean, they'll give you, they'll keep you in it. That's what this team has done. I mean, they, I wonder like what the record is for most one run games in a season, but Mets have definitely pushed that. 58 one run games this year for the Mets. That is tops in the majors. All right. Good place to put a pin in it. I think for this week for episode 53 of the pleasant good evening podcast. Uh, Mets cards tonight starting a big series. Mets trying to make up ground in the NL wild card race. Still got a chance in the division with 18 to play five out, three games out in the wild card. We'll see how it shakes out, but for now, we'll see you next week. For Jack Hendon, I'm Sam Ludwitz. And Mets fans, have a pleasant day.